Welcome to another post-Game 7 victory edition of the Boston Celtics podcast, Celtics Lab. I am so excited. I can't even remember the name of my own podcast. Uh, I'm here, co-host Alex Goldberg. We will hopefully be joined by some people uh, trying to figure out exactly what fueled that historic performance by Jason Tatum. Alex. Man. Happy Mother's Day. Um, Indeed. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously the headline in the story uh, today is that Jason Tatum erupted for 51 points and just slaughtered the Sixers at basically every level throughout Game 7. Um, you know, it's it's just... At the end of the day, Justin, basketball is not an immensely complicated game for all that we make it out to be. You know, there's a lot of stats and analytics and, uh, you know, cool things that we as fans can kind of latch on to and uh, pick apart and get into kind of really micro nuanced territory. But um, at the end of the day, you know, basketball and particularly playoff basketball is about having the best guy on the floor. And if you have the best guy on the floor, you're going to win. And Jason Tatum was astonishingly the best guy on the floor today it was not close he was in complete control of this game even in the beginning phase of the game where the the process was a little ragged for boston it was clear that tatum was coming in with an agenda um i guess that's where we should start in that first quarter but my my initial takeaway is wow holy hell jason tatum is an incredible basketball player and we are very very lucky to have him on this team this episode of the Celtics Lab podcast is brought to you by FanDuel, the exclusive wagering partner of the CLNS Media Network and BetterHelp. You deserve to be happy. You probably don't need therapy at this particular moment. Might be good for uh, any of our friends who happen to be Philadelphia 76ers fans to check out BetterHelp just to help you know cope with that very expected collapse if we're talking about two of the people on that team, uh, kind of the coaching staff and get that just a second. And I bet most of us did not have Tatum going off for a historic, as in the most points anyone in the history of the NBA has ever scored in a game seven. We just witnessed that tonight. Yeah, it's crazy to think that Jason Tatum is, uh, you know, still kind of getting better as a player and is already in historic territory. Like, you know, this Celtics team has been maddeningly inconsistent at times. But throughout all of that, um, the one thing that has been consistent for the Celtics this season, for the most part, is that uh, when games matter, Jason Tatum shows up in a big way. And tonight was no exception. Um, Obviously, a lot of momentum carrying in from when he saved the Celtics season in game six on the road in Philly. Um, But, you know, starting off in the kind of first quarter of the game, uh, just kind of walking through it, I think. One of the things that uh, stood out to me, just like as at, at the very beginning of the phases of the game, is that the Celtics offense was not looking super crisp. They were turning over the ball and they were, you know, kind of doing the usual process things that uh, they uh, struggle with. They were not getting great looks, taking too long to get into their offense, generally like looking a little dicey. Um, but Jason Tatum was scoring. He was getting to the rim. He was getting to the free throw line. He was getting in a good rhythm. Uh, And even though the rest of the team was not really activated at that point, um, it was clear that Tatum was uh, showing up ready to play this game. But the thing that really stood out to me in that first quarter was that the Celtics were just locked defensively from opening tip. Um, So Al Horford, I think, is the first shout out that we have to get to. We'll get to Jason Tatum and all the things that he's done throughout the pod. But as far as... um, guys who maybe do not get the headline al harford had an absolutely terrific game tonight uh he locked up joel Embiid, consistently made life difficult for him at the elbows um he did a nice job of hedging and recovering to try and blow up that harden Embiid pick and roll which has really been the staple of the sixers offense um in general you know al harford is a he's a solid veteran player he knows how to step up in big moments. Tonight's was no tonight was no exception. He had a terrific game, set the tone defensively, and I think from there the Celtics just kind of went off to the races. Yeah, a couple of things really stood out in the first half. Uh, my notes definitely look like a game that the Celtics are going to lose <laughs> in the first half. Uh, lots of complaining on my part for the lack of ball movement, uh, for the very few three-pointers taken. Uh, and that three-pointer deficit, at first it seemed like it was a bug, but 
as the game progressed, it increasingly started to look like it might be a feature, uh, particularly once Jason Tatum started hitting some three-pointers in the pick and roll. Uh, the pick and roll seemed to be the primary offensive weapon that the Celtics leaned on, maybe because Tatum started getting hot early, maybe because that was a plan all along. If it was, that was a real boss move by Joe Missoula. Uh, what are your thoughts on this funky offense that we saw that really handed this uh, historic performance to us? I have two thoughts. The first is that it is somewhat a byproduct of starting two bigs, uh, having Robert Williams and uh, Al Horford on the floor allows the Celtics to operate in a little more of a pick and roll heavy offense as opposed to uh, a pace and space offense with Al Horford and kind of five out. I think in general, um, they tried to use Robert Williams to kind of occupy that dunker spot area and then have Al Horford and Marcus Smart kind of set picks for Jason Tatum to get going towards the rim with a chance to either score or hit Rob uh, for lobs or hit the corners for threes. And it, it seemed like they kind of went back to that more so than anything because of the, the defensive alignment for the Celtics and how uh, they were trying to kind of play bigger um, and use their size to their advantage. Another thing that stood out to me is that they were in particular really targeting Embiid specifically. Um, Tatum kind of made a point really more so in the second half, but throughout the game of like trying to get Embiid into that pick and roll dance, bring him out high, take him away from the rim. You know, Embiid has been such a good rim protector, both this series and really the entire playoffs. Um, I think from a process standpoint, it makes a lot of sense as to why you want to try and pull him away from the rim. And the Celtics did that to great effect. But, you know, again, for me, Justin, it has to start on the defensive end. Um, and I think that the Celtics, what 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 stood out to me is that their offensive pace kind of more closely matched their defense and what they were trying to do there, where the defense was trying to kind of keep the game at a certain speed. They weren't really flying up and down the court in the way that they have been in previous games in uh, this matchup. Um, they really tried more so to kind of keep a steady diet of pick and roll, to keep a half-court game going and kind of beat the Sixers at their own game. And they did so to great effect. They did a really good job with throwing all kinds of different looks at Embiid as well. He was never comfortable. The ball got poked out of his hands on at least four occasions. I can remember maybe more than that. They did a really, really good job with him while also really shutting down the perimeter. Uh, I think they held the 76ers to just over 31% from, from the perimeter in the first half of the game, which is crazily not even when they really started to stick it to them. Uh, thoughts on how they handled the three-headed snake that is uh, Maxi, James Harden, and Embiid? So they did a nice job of keying in on Embiid and making things hard for him. But, you know, honestly, I think the Celtics defense was good in this game. I don't think it was great. I think that it was more so a byproduct of what has become a pretty familiar refrain for uh, this time of year. James Harden was a ghost in this game. He was completely absent. And it was really the case from the first quarter onward. You know, one of the things that I was talking, I was of course, with my family doing Mother's Day things as we were watching the game. And I was doing my best to talk my mom through what was happening on the court. And one of the things that uh, I pointed out to her was that James Harden was just like not push pushing the ball. He was not getting involved really in any meaningful sense. There were a number of times in the first quarter where James Harden beat his man and had an open lane to the basket and instead, it's kick out to P.J. Tucker for a corner three, kick out to Tobias Harris above the break, it, you know, drive into traffic and try and find somebody else. James Harden really was going out of his way to be a facilitator in that first quarter. And like, I get it, you know, on some degree, you want to have players who are unselfish. You want to have players who can set other guys up and particularly in a closeout game. That's understandable. But listen, man, you are getting paid presumably max contract money this offseason or expecting to do so. If you want that money, you need to score in game sevens. And James Harden is a generational scorer, you know, one in MVP. He's by all accounts going to go down with numerous records and, and being remembered as one of the most gifted offensive players that this game has ever seen. 
So to see him just melt down again in critical moments in the playoffs, to be completely gun shy, not looking for a shot on any level, particularly when the Sixers have at their best mostly been a James Harden-centric team this uh, this year. I mean, the, the best version of the Sixers that we saw in this series was one where Harden was leading the dance and Embiid was the secondary attacker that was kind of coming in after Harden had already softened up the defense. James Harden was completely absent from today's proceedings. And I think that is ultimately what killed the Sixers as much as anything. Like, you can't have that kind of a performance from one of your two best players. He had zero points in uh, the fourth quarter of this game. He just was completely absent from opening tip. He ended with nine points total. Like, that's pretty unacceptable if you're trying to have this guy be a foundational piece. Another thing I wanted to talk about involves Harden. Uh, to an extent, we also saw some similar manifestations taking the form of double technicals uh, when uh, Jalen Brown found himself being grabbed by, I think it was Niang uh, yes. off the Philly bench. How are we thinking about the officiating in this game with the Harden shiv to, uh, again, Jalen's face uh, and just the general atmosphere given Woj's, shall we say, interesting uh, comments yeah. ahead of the game? So obviously Scott Foster uh, was the lead official tonight. And, you know, um, I think I think it's Eric Lewis, is that right, was also in this game. And there's much consternation about how, like, Eric Lewis has a really great record when the – like, the Celtics have a really great re record when Eric Lewis is refing. Scott Foster, you know, there's plenty of baggage there. Overall, there were definitely some questionable calls, I think, in this game, uh, both for and against Boston. Um, and in general, you know, you hate to see that kind of in a playoff game in particular – but at the end of the day, the officiating did not was not the determinant factor in the outcome of this game. The determinant factor was that James Harden completely disappeared. Joel Embiid had a really hard time against Al Horford and Jason Tatum just ripped Philly's throat out in the third quarter and onward. Yeah, in fact, I actually went as far as to comment during the game that this is exactly this game, how the Celtics played. It's exactly how you should play if you feel that the refs are being a little bit questionable towards you. Uh, put it on the court and make that be your answer. And boy, did they. Yeah, seriously. Um, so I have a couple of shout outs that I think we want to get into. Obviously, one of them is, you know, the big one is Jason Tatum, 51 Historic performance. I mean, what more can you ask for from your superstar? Where James Harden was absent, Jason Tatum was very much fully present. Um, he was phenomenal from opening tip. He completely controlled the pace of the game. And he got into this flow state where the shots that he's taking, I, I think a number of the shots that he took towards the kind of middle to end of the game were objectively not great looks, like contested fadeaways, step backs, things of that nature, things that you think, ah, the process on this really isn't good. But at the end of the day, Jason Tatum is one of the 10 best basketball players on earth. And you have to give him those shots and you have to make those shots something that you're focusing on. Because when he hits him, it's backbreaking for the opponent and for really anybody else. He came in with an agenda. He was not going to let them lose this game. And the result is a historic performance that will likely put him in the pantheon of Celtics greats to come. Um, that's my first shout out. Al Horford, again, you know, just staunch defensive effort. He started hitting threes as well. I believe he had two of them. Um, never wavered from that. You know, he, he never lost confidence, which is just typical of a sound, solid veteran leader, uh, that he's become. Um, he was terrific and he, you know, completely locked up Joel Embiid, made life incredibly difficult on him. Um, other shout outs. Jalen Brown, you know, I think Jalen Brown had a couple of shots that were not particularly great and a couple of bad turnovers. Um, he also took a little bit of a physical beating in this game, uh, just getting knocked around a little bit. Obviously, James Harden smacking him in the face didn't help. Uh, neither did George Niang grabbing his knee, but he was terrific. He had 25 points. He was efficient. Uh, whenever the Celtics needed somebody other than Jason Tatum to score, Jalen Brown was there, ready to roll. Um 
just exactly what you want from a number two option. And the result is he and Jason Tatum combined for 76 points combined, which is wild. Two players putting up 76 in a game seven scenario is that's that is crazy. Um, I think they almost doubled up, uh, not doubled up. I think what they had a lead over Embiid and Harden almost yeah. as much as they scored. Yeah. I mean, remarkable performance. Um, other shout outs that I think we, I, I think we need to really key in on this one. Joe Missoula has been superb for the past two games. The adjustments that he made, starting Robert Williams, changing the coverages on defense, um, making sure to take away the Sixers' bread and butter uh, kind of pocket pass, pick and roll from Harden and Embiid, um, slimming down the rotation to seven guys, reorienting the offense around a pick and roll set specifically to get Jason Tatum going. Like every single question that Joe Mazzulla, uh, that, that we had about Joe Mazzulla after game five, he pretty much answered in these past few games. And, you know, it's been an up and down season for Joe Mazzulla. He's had some decisions that have backfired. He's had some questionable choices here and there, but um, I, I've been pretty steadfast on this. That guy is a good coach. And, I, you know, if we are going to be okay with slamming Joe Mazzulla when he messes up, then we have to be okay with praising him when he succeeds. And these past two games, he did a terrific job getting this team ready to play. Um, Marcus Smart. You know, a typical Marcus Smart performance, not particularly like exploding off the, the stat sheet, but clearly his presence was felt in this game. He was tagging and beat on rolls. He was messing things up in their pick and roll dance and just like getting in, in the way, stealing the ball, um, hitting timely shots, setting the offense up well. It's all the little things with Marcus Smart. And when he's at his best, that's the kind of player he is in particular you know, getting into Marcus Smart as a screener, I think paid a lot of dividends for Boston. Robert Williams was also terrific. Um, you know, I think after having a, a, an up and down first half, he really got it rolling as uh, the dunker spot guy, catching lobs, providing rim pressure, and just generally being in the way. I, I, I mean, I think I think it, it it was a full team effort, even if Jason Tatum gets the glory of the 51 points. Everybody contributed to this win, uh, and it, it, it was pretty cool to watch. Now, if I was looking for a place to, you know, bet on a historic performance from Jason Tatum tonight, what would be a good place? Well, Justin, if you were looking to bet, the place that you want to go is FanDuel. Make a fast break to FanDuel during the NBA playoffs, because right now, new customers can get a no-sweat first bet up to $1,000. That's $1,000 back in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Some of the greatest things about FanDuel, it's safe, it's secure. You can get paid instantly, and there are great promotions. Um, in general, you can look at all sorts of different odds, different lines, uh, and those promotions, you, you can win and you can win repeatedly. There is no better place to bet all of the playoff action than America's number one sportsbook. Visit FanDuel.com Boston and get a no-sweat first bet up to $1,000. That's FanDuel.com slash Boston. FanDuel, the official sports betting partner of the NBA. 21 plus in select states. First online real money wager only. $10 deposit required. Refund issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG. For Colorado, Iowa, uh, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia, call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 for Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat for Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT for Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com for Kansas, Call 1-877-770-STOP in LA, gamblinghelplinema.org, or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts. Visit www.mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland, 1-877-8-HOPE-NY, or text HOPE-NY-467-369 for New York, 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming, or visit www.1800gambler.net for West Virginia.
So speaking of bets, we are looking at the same four teams now as a result of this win as in the 2020 uh, COVID bubble that took place in Orlando at Walt Disney World's properties. Uh, thoughts on facing the Miami Heat? Man, another, <laughs> another round of hell in a cell against Jimmy Butler and Eric Spolstra. Um, you know, I mean, here's the thing. So we can't sleep on the Miami Heat. Um, the Miami Heat are extremely well coached. They have a lot of experienced veteran players. Jimmy Butler has been out of his mind for the entire playoffs, as he seems to do every time this time of year when he's in the playoffs. Um, they have also made some smart adjustments. Kyle Lowry coming off the bench has worked really well for them in that series against the Knicks. Kevin Love adds a dimension of spacing and size to this Miami team that they really did not have prior to acquiring him. Duncan Robinson has been dusted off and is now back in Miami shooting at a high percentage. Uh, he's you know playing meaningful minutes. Gabe Vincent has been playing really well as the starting point guard. In general, this Miami Heat team is better than they were um, for basically all of the regular season. They kind of limped into the playoffs. They were very beat up, but they're rolling right now and the Celtics cannot afford to sleep on them. Um, a couple of things that are going the Celtics way in this matchup that were not last year. The Celtics are a good deal healthier heading into this matchup than they were in the previous season. Now, obviously, Miami is super physical. That is their defining trait as a team. So I would expect that the Celtics will not come out of this series completely unsaved. God willing, they do. But um, that's it, it's going to be a physical and demanding series. They will also have home court. Uh, in this series, which they did not have last year. Uh, and it, they very much, it, it was a slog, let's be real. They they had a, an absolute war in the conference finals against Miami last year. And I would expect nothing less against this Miami team. I think they're coming to play. They've, they completely believe in themselves. They are playing with so much confidence right now. Um, this is going to be a challenging matchup in a lot of respects. That being said, there are a couple of advantages uh, that Boston, I think, can go to. Malcolm Brogdon is the player that um, Brad Stevens, you know, kind of brought into this offseason thinking this would be the guy to put them over the top. And I think one of the reasons that he specifically zoned in on Brogdon is because Brogdon is the perfect player to counter a lot of Miami's defensive actions. He's able to get the ball on the floor, score with confidence, set up other guys, Um that is that is exactly who you need in a series against Miami. So I'm expecting big stuff from him. For me, there are a couple of key questions. Um, the first is, how is Boston, how, how is Al Horford going to manage this series? Because he, he has had a pretty hefty workload in this playoff so far. Uh, Bam Adebayo is a tough matchup in a variety of respects. And I think, you know, Kevin Love, Miami has real and meaningful size. The, this is going to be, another tough series for uh, Boston's bigs. So how are they going to manage that? Um, similarly, is Kevin Love's spacing going to make it challenging for Joe Missoula to play the double big lineup? I'm hoping, I I'm hoping that the answer to that is no, that they can kind of have uh, Al Horford just space out as a primary defender and continue to have Robert Williams, uh, you know, rove off of whoever they want shooting the ball but Miami has more shooting than Philly on the floor and will have more shooting than Philly on the floor. Defensively, the Celtics will have some opportunities to attack that they did not uh, against Philly. Bam Adebayo is a very good player. He is not the rim protector that Joel Embiid is. Duncan Robinson, Kevin Love, those guys are targets and Boston can hunt them pretty relentlessly. Um, but as always, the number one thing that they need, that Boston needs to do is find a way to contain Jimmy Butler, who has been, again, just out of his mind, incredible for this entire playoffs. They're going to need to have multiple bodies to throw at him. They're going to need to be able to play with pace and wear him down. And they're going to they're going to need to be prepared for some of these games where he's he's going to have some monster performances in the series. I expect nothing less. So a lot to watch. It's a fascinating matchup. It's a familiar matchup in some ways, but a different one in a lot of other ways. Oh, man. And it's going to be stressful because I, I truly believe that Eric Spolstra is far and away the best coach in the NBA right now. And he's going to be cooking up a storm. It, you know, Joe Missoula, I think, has done a really good job for the most part. 
this is easily his toughest test yet. And uh, I will be very interested to see how the Celtics respond. So in my mind, the obvious X factor for the Miami Heat in this situation is clearly Spolstra and his coaching. Uh, we, Jimmy, at this point, is a known factor. You just have to assume that you're going to be getting like 60% of what we saw from Jason Tatum on a night-to-night -night basis in, in this series. Uh, going back the other direction, who, you know, besides the Jays in this series would be, in your opinion, an X factor for the Celtics in this? Uh... So I, I already listed Malcolm Brogdon, and I think that's a big one. Um, in particular, he's going to have to not only manage that bench unit and the bench scoring, but he's going to have to be able to handle Kyle Lowry and all of the physicality that he brings as a backup point guard. Um, you know, I think Lowry coming off the bench has been one of the biggest reasons that Miami has turned their season around and gotten all the way to the conference finals. He's playing outstanding basketball right now. So Brogdon for me is a critical factor. Um, obviously Robert Williams, it adds a completely different dimension to the Celtics team when he's healthy and rolling. Um, I think one of the big things that Boston struggled with in last year's series is that Robert Williams was compromised physically and Miami knew that and targeted him pretty uh, aggressively when he was on the floor. There were a lot of situations where they were trying to bring Robert Williams into the screening action, try and get him matched up with a faster perimeter player outside and uh, you know take him out of what he does best, which is patrol the restricted area and block shots and get rebounds. Um, he's, his health will be critical in this and his ability to stay on the floor. Um, the other guy that I'm looking at is Marcus Smart. Uh, Marcus Smart has had, I think, some up and down playoffs where the best games he's been spectacular and arguably won the Celtics a couple of games. But he's also taking a beating in a lot of these series. You know, he's been physically dinged up since kind of midway through the Atlanta series. And Marcus is a tough guy. Like that dude can take just about anything. Um, but this Miami team is so physical and so difficult to cover. And if you don't think Jimmy Butler is going to be coming at Marcus Smart with his shoulders and his elbows and every single thing to try and, you know, take him off of his rhythm, that that is a wrongheaded assessment. So for me, Marcus needs to stay healthy um, and he needs to be able to be effective in his role as a setup man. Uh, you know, I think Miami is going to throw as many interesting coverages at Jason Tatum as they possibly can. Their number one goal is going to be take Jason Tatum out of rhythm. That's what it was last year. And, you know, they've done that. They they have a track record of being able to do that. Can Marcus Smart, uh, as the lead point guard, find ways to get Jason Tatum going in particular is a huge storyline for me this series. I don't disagree. Another thing that I'm thinking about with this series, too, is will we see any changes in who actually gets on the floor? Because for this series, at least, it's just a seven-man rotation. Nobody really got any meaningful minutes beyond the starters besides uh, Brogdon and White. Do you see anybody who hasn't been playing in this series who might make an appearance in the next? I'm keeping my eye on Grant Williams and Sam Hauser. Um, I think both of those guys have gotten some spot minutes in the playoffs with kind of varying effectiveness. I think there's going to be opportunities for Sam Hauser to play this series, particularly if the Heat are playing Duncan Robinson a lot, which I think in some ways they kind of have to. Um, Sam Hauser is in a lot of ways a similar player to Duncan Robinson. They are both kind of longer than you expect forwards. Uh, they can hit the outside shot uh, at a high level. Um, they have questions defensively. Obviously, Joe Missoula you know, did not like what he saw from Sam Hauser in games one and two against Philly. And he basically didn't show up outside of garbage time. Um, so I think that's that's a guy I'm looking at for if he can get some opportunities in this series uh, against some of Miami's, you know, maybe less impactful defensive players. Um, and then Grant Williams, I think they're going to need at least a few games where Grant Williams is actually able to contribute meaningful minutes. Just because I would anticipate with all of the intelligence and guile and physicality that Miami has to bring, the bigs are going to get in some foul trouble. I, I would bet good money on that. Uh, and I think- Al needs rest that, too. I mean, Al, Al, yeah, and Al does need a little bit of rest. I think Grant Williams is going to have to be able to come in and contribute, at least on some level. Um, and, you know, Joe Mazzula, I think slimming down the rotation for the last couple of games was absolutely the right call. 
um, in game six and seven scenarios, you need to 100% trust the guys that you're playing to do their jobs at a high level and small mistakes can kill you. But in the earlier games, uh, that's where I think you want to try and get uh, a little bit of rest, a little bit of, you know, breathing room for Al in particular. Uh, that's where I, I am interested to see whether Hauser and Grant Williams can contribute in this series. Well, it probably shouldn't be, but I have to say that just advancing back to the conference finals, not only does it, you know, move the season out of disaster territory, should they fall, uh, we don't want them to lose in the Eastern, you know, conference finals, obviously, but it's a heck of a lot better than going out, down in the second round. Yep. How are we feeling in terms of our mental health? Well, I'm feeling pretty good about my mental health right now, but if you're not feeling great about your mental mental health, then uh, there's a couple of things you can do. And one of the things that you can do is you can go to our friends at BetterHelp. So um, BetterHelp is a, an online therapy service. Uh, it helps a lot with um, all sorts of, if you, if you have, uh, you know, any anything to kind of look at for your mental health, to kind of develop your own practice and uh, to kind of do so in a way that is sustainable and thoughtful and not necessarily reliant on, I don't know, whether your basketball team wins or loses, um, then BetterHelp is a really great place to get started. Um, and, you know, it's really easy to get caught up in what everybody else kind of needs from you in the world today um, and to not think about what you need from yourself. BetterHelp is there to help you manage that process. Um, when we spend all of our time giving to other people or, uh, you know, trying to be our best selves for, uh, you know, everything else that we have to do. It can leave you feeling thin, stretched out, burned out, um, and BetterHelp can help you there um, with online, reliable therapy. Um, and it can give you the tools to find a little bit more balance in your life. Um, you know, in particular, it's uh, online, it's, you know, easy to access. You can kind of go through all sorts of different options, find somebody that works for you. BetterHelp is um, a, a really great program in a lot of ways, particularly if you're just getting started with therapy and it's something that you kind of don't, uh, you don't have a lot of comfort with, um, BetterHelp is a great place to jump in. Very cool, sorry, I muted myself there. Uh, speaking of things that, would have messed with my mental health. Uh, the opportunity not to face the Los Angeles Lakers in the NBA Finals would have put a very, very tiny thing in it because unlike a lot of people, I do want to see the Lakers do well because I love to see the Celtics and the Lakers in the Finals, right? This is actually realistically a possibility in a way that I think a lot of us didn't really take seriously uh, before they beat the Golden State Warriors three games uh, to, I think it was three, I mean, four games to three. Uh, what are your thoughts on this particular series? Um, so the Lakers won four games to two, just want to clarify that. Um, but uh, so they will be facing the number one seeded Denver Nuggets who have up to this point, I think been pretty clearly the best team in the playoffs. Nikola Jokic is magnificent and has been magnificent for two series in a row completely dominating his opponents and in general this Denver Nuggets team is rolling right now Jamal Murray has really reestablished himself as a top flight creator and scorer um, Michael Porter Jr. is really evolving not just as a shooter but as a cutter in particular he's doing a really nice job getting involved in a bunch of different ways and becoming a more dynamic player in general Aaron Gordon and Contavious Caldwell Pope and Bruce Brown have taken what was a pretty moribund Denver defense and turned it into a genuinely menacing one. Uh, their perimeter defense is operating at a really high level. And in general, I think the Nuggets are pretty clearly established at this point as the most consistent game-to-game -game team in the playoffs. So this is going to be a real challenge for the Lakers. Um, that being said, if I'm a Lakers fan, one thing I'm looking at with some optimism is that LeBron James is back. Um, he had an superb closeout game uh, in LA against the Warriors last night, or I guess it was the night before. Um, but he looked all the way back. He was, you know, making great floor reads, scoring pretty much at will. In general, he just seems very much physically 
uh, in a much stronger place. Now, obviously, the playoffs are a grind. LeBron has a lot of miles on his body, and I guess he's still nursing a foot injury. But you you wouldn't have noticed it if you had watched that game six. He's been terrific. And Anthony Davis is the real story for the Lakers. He has been playing, I would say, maybe the best basketball of his career, um, all things being equal. Um, as a rim protector, he's never looked better. He's putting up monster rebounding stat lines and is in general impacting the game at a super high level. This Lakers roster is really well built. Um, we have to give Rob Palinka some credit. They really it's nailed that. to say that, man. It does, but they nailed that trade deadline. They have a lot of guys on this team who can contribute. The emergence of Austin Reeves has been pretty significant. D'Angelo Russell looks comfortable as their third option. Dennis Schroeder, I think, has been playing really well, both in, as a starter and as a bench piece, and it's nice to have that flexibility. They have guys who can hurt you. They have Jared Vanderbilt, who's emerging as a quality defender. I think this is going to be a really, really good series. And I could, I very easily could see it going to seven games. I would give the slight edge to Denver because of home court and just how good Jokic has been. But there's definitely a world where the Lakers win this and we could be talking about the greatest matchup in NBA history, yet another chapter in a few weeks from now. With the absurdity of both teams going for uh, NBA record 18th banner at that, uh, I'm just going to try to show thinking about that too much uh, because I don't want my enthusiasm to rub off on the Celtics because we know what happens when they think they're going to be in a series they haven't gotten to yet. The Heat are the real deal. We cannot take that for granted. They are a serious basketball team and they're going to make everything they can to do to make life difficult for Boston. We should probably talk about the losers of the two uh, East or excuse me, West semifinal series, uh, the Phoenix Suns and the Golden yes. State Warriors, and what is going to be happening in their future. Let's start with the Phoenix Suns. They fired their head coach, Monty Williams. Uh, I have my eye on him as a potential Boston uh, assistant if he doesn't pick up a job immediately. Uh, he and uh, Paul Silas's son, Stephen, I think are two of the more interesting names out there, Silas uh, being affiliated with Boston uh, through a visit, as well as his you know historic ties through his dad. Uh, yeah. Any thoughts on what's going on with the Suns? Man, um, so the Suns went all in this year for Kevin Durant. Uh, they traded Mikhail Bridges. They traded Cam Johnson. They traded a whole boatload of first round picks, and they ended up in pretty much the same spot that they were last year. Uh, they have a lot of questions about their roster, and obviously who is going to be their head coach is very much up in the air. Um, it's a really interesting offseason for the Suns. I am personally of the opinion that um, if you're able to get Kevin Durant for two players who might make all-star teams, maybe, uh, and that's big if, um, you have to do it. So I don't hate that trade for Phoenix by any means but it does change what their team looks like going forward. And it really radically accelerates their timeline because Kevin Durant is 34. Um, DeAndre Ayton does not seem happy uh, second year in a row that he does not seem super thrilled about being on the Phoenix Suns. He has a big contract. Um, and I think there is there are some questions about what his role is going to be. I, I guess my question is, was the firing of Monty Williams in part motivated by internal dissension between him and DeAndre Ayton about their role? If that's the case and the Suns plan on keeping DeAndre Ayton, then their offseason gets a little bit less complicated and a little bit more difficult in some ways because they are capped out and do not have picks to trade. So retooling this roster substantially becomes a difficult proposition without trading a big piece like DeAndre Ayton. If you do trade DeAndre Ayton, I think that opens up a lot of flexibility for what their roster could be. I think it's pretty fair to say that Durant and Devin Booker are not going anywhere. Those guys are locked into the Phoenix Suns core for the foreseeable future. You also have Chris Paul, who I, I think- ask what you think happens with him. I think a lot of smoke around the idea that Chris Paul has probably played his last game in a Phoenix Suns uniform. You know, Chris Paul is an all-time great player. He will be remembered as a Hall of Famer. He is pretty clearly in the twilight of his career now. Uh, he cannot stay healthy at a reasonable rate uh, for a team that's trying to win a title right now. I would not be shocked at all if they move on from Chris Paul this offseason. Um, the question to me is, are they going to try and package Aiton and Chris Paul together to get a third star player for that team? Because I feel like that's their main path to contention. It strikes me as a difficult proposition 
to trade Paul and Aiton for uh, depth pieces. I just feel like there's not a whole lot of clean and effective ways to do that. Who would bite on that as a potential star trade package? I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of not sure. I can kind of think of another team that wouldn't be the worst option considering that they, they held on to uh, a two-timeline approach that really cost them. Uh, and this is, of course, the other team that I wanted to talk about, the Golden State Warriors. Yeah, They really screwed up, I think, at the trade deadline by not consolidating some of that younger talent. And while it's not the greatest younger talent, if you're dealing with an organization in a similar boat as you, and the main thing is that both of you kind of need the parts the other has, I think that might not be the worst move. Uh, but like, what do you think is coming for the Golden State Warriors? It's so hard because I just... So... I really don't think that, like Steph Curry is going to be a Golden State Warrior for the rest of his career. I don't think there's any debating that. Unless he specifically says, I want out, there's just no way that he's going to be like dealt or move on. I, I just don't see it happening. So in terms of like the other guys that you can move, it's true. You can do a young pieces consolidation trade and maybe... You know, if you send out like a Jonathan Kaminga and, you know, a Moses Moody and a bunch of other stuff for a player like DeAndre Ayton, that could be the kind of trade that you're looking for. I don't really see how that would work for Golden State in particular, especially given how good Kevon Looney's been for them, specifically playing the role that he is playing. Um, I also think there's something to the idea that the Warriors really found success uh, above all else in continuity. And for as, you know, for as challenging as this stretch has been for the Warriors with trying to integrate younger players into their rotation and making that work, at the end of the day, the core three of Steph, Clay, and Draymond, they all had good seasons. And I think there's reasonable enough evidence to suggest that if you put those guys in a situation where they can win, um, they will deliver. They did deliver in the first round. They didn't have enough juice to beat this Lakers team. But I, I would be surprised if the Warriors uh, change out any of their core three parts between Draymond, Clay, and Steph. There's a lot of talk about what will Draymond Green's extension look like? Will that be you know enough to keep him in Golden State? I would be surprised if they don't work something out at this point. I just feel like everything that he's saying, everything that Steph Curry's been saying, my, my best guess is that Draymond Green is a Warrior this time next year. Um, the question for me is, what happens more so to Andrew Wiggins, to Kevon Looney, to Jordan Poole, to those guys? Um, well, there's definitely think you need to package some of them with some of the younger guys. I think it might be worth hanging on to Moses Moody, but I, the rest of them, I'm that, not so that's sure. that's Kaminga, what, I, what is he giving you? Yeah, the, and and Kaminga, I think wants out. I think he's he's looking for a bigger role, understandably so, but I think he's he's ready to do something different. Um, you know, I think. The tough part with Jordan Poole is that Jordan Poole is on a very big contract and a contract that I think a lot of teams would be a little bit gun shy about taking on. It would I don't think any, there's any team in the league at this point that would not be gun shy about it. He, he only excels when he's in exactly the right position and there isn't enough supporting cast with the, the team that he's on now to put him in that position. So he's going to be a mediocre player who's considerably overpaid until they can get him open constantly. And it's going to be difficult because, you know, Draymond Green, I think, has apologized a lot and he's talked about this a lot, but I get the sense that there's still a little bit of bad blood between him and Jordan Poole, given, understandably, that Draymond Green punched Jordan Poole in the face. Uh, and typically it, it takes a little bit to repair the bond there. Um, so to me, Jordan Poole seems like the obvious candidate for Golden State to try and package with some other guys to upgrade a little bit. But the question is, who's taking on Jordan Poole? Who wants to do that? Who wants to sign up for that? And what would they be getting back in return to make that work? And then you come up with the Wiggins question. I think Andrew Wiggins, you know, had a weird season. He missed a lot of time with, um, you know, some family stuff. And obviously there are things that are bigger than basketball. Andrew Wiggins, we hope that uh, all is okay there. Um, to me, Andrew Wiggins is still a good player that can very much contribute to a winning basketball team. Uh, even with the contract that he's on, I think, I think Andrew Wiggins could help a lot of teams. And I kind of wonder if given pools, relatively low value, would Andrew Wiggins uh, 
be would, would it make sense for Golden State to move Andrew Wiggins now while his value is pretty high um, for, say, I don't know, a fourth true star level player that they could add into that starting five? I don't think that's a reasonable assumption. In fact, that's what I expect them to do. I do expect some significant moves as well. I just, like you, I think there's one more good title run left in this this core three. So I do expect to see them back with the Warriors next season, though I don't expect that. Uh, we do have a couple other news things to talk about before we use the magic of editing to bring uh, Cameron Tabatabai in to join us from his media availability, along with maybe a special guest. We'll see how that works out. Oh, you know what? Scratch that. He heard me talking about him. Here he comes now. We'll just bring him in now. All right. So while we wait for Cam to get his sea legs underneath him, uh, we should mention that the Celtics have been working out guys in the second round fairly consistently. Hi, Cam. You are live with us. Uh, the the targets that they are going after in these pre-draft workouts are guys who are projected fairly firmly in the second round towards the latter half of it, guys that you probably only take with a promise, uh, with the idea that you'd be developing them most likely. There's a couple guys uh, that I thought were interesting and might be able to play pretty quickly. One interesting guy, uh, I just did an article on him today, Taylor Funk of Utah State. He modeled his game on Larry Bird. He's nowhere near the player Larry Bird is or he wouldn't be going in the second round, but he's very interesting for those reasons. Also, UConn fans are probably happy to hear that Andre Jackson of the title team interviewed uh, with the Celtics or worked out for the Celtics uh, ahead of the draft. And then the other thing that we really need to talk about uh, has uh. nothing to do with the Boston Celtics in any way, shape, or form other than it might make some of their West Coast games, uh, well, not West Coast, but Western Conference games uh, next season more Obviously, easy to deal with early in the season based on what I'm hearing is going to be a lengthy suspension coming for one John Morant. Alex, any thoughts on that? My thoughts are John Morant. Um, perhaps we should consider the uh, not 96 hour rehab option in the future. Seems like uh, things are not going super well for this guy. Uh, I hope he's able to figure it out because John Morant is just such a fun basketball player to watch. But, um, you know, he's clearly going through some stuff right now. And I don't know what it is, but um, that that guy needs uh, some some time off the court to get his life in order. So, Cam, I know that you were mostly doing media availability. We just kind of threw this in your lap, uh, unbeknownst to you. But any immediate reactions to those lovely videos that Ja posted of himself and the reaction from the I thought you were about to ask me about the second round of the draft. And I was like, Justin, I couldn't possibly <laughs> care less. Um yeah, there's nothing really smart to say that probably hasn't been said other than I think the tact that the team and the league took is immediately painting him as a victim was not the right act. Um, he is not uh, any more or less dumb than a lot of 24-year-olds, but he has a lot of money and a lot of visibility uh, at stake here. So it, the stakes are just different. Um, I hope... Uh, a more obvious penalty with more obvious long-term penalties uh, encourages him to change his behavior. Least of which, and this is pedantic and not really the takeaway, stop going on Instagram Live, dude. Are you out of your mind? <laughs> Delete like, the goddamn that at this point. Like, yeah, let's, are, I mean, his, I, yeah. I, I, yeah, I I do not think John Morant is the only player in the NBA that owns a firearm. Um, no, let's let's put it that way. Um, but he's the only one that people are talking about. <laughs> All right, can we talk about the Celtics? Yes, let's talk about the Celtics. So, the mood, how was it? The mood was great. Jalen had one of his, I would use the word funniest, funniest press conferences. He was cracking jokes. He, the mood was light. Um, Joe Mazzulla was laser focused per usual. He said he's going to have a glass of wine and watch game tape to celebrate the win. Um, Tatum was reflective and uh, humbly spoke at length to the uh, to the media. So yeah, the mood was good from the players post game. The mood in the garden was unbelievable, and I think the Jalen and Jason both were quick to kind of unprompted levy that, that praise for the fans that they really brought the heat. 
there were moments where it was like, wow, I don't know if I've ever been in a building this loud. And then it got louder. <laughs> and maybe this is a sign of age, but like, it sounded like the speakers in my brain had broken. It sounded like fried audio. Um, so yeah, it was uh, whatever the fans paid to get through the gate. Couldn't put a price on that. I mean, that was a world-class performance. And also, whoa. I mean, if this was the Sixers Lab podcast, we would be talking about an unbelievable choke job from the Philadelphia 76ers. Yeah. Uh, they scored 10 points in the third quarter. That's so bad. And a franchise record. Yeah. So before we get into the nuts and bolts of what you heard, let's talk about that the game. We already spoke a little bit about it ahead of time. Actually, a lot of it about it. But One of the you're things, the second round of the draft. I'm sure you guys covered. The no, game. seriously. Uh, the the big takeaway in terms of a tactical uh, aspect, and we aren't really clear. We were hoping you could provide some clarity on this. Was whether the pick and roll that got started in the first half, but really, you know, hit its full stride when Tatum went off, whether that was a product of Tatum getting hot or whether that was an actual thing that they planned to do the whole time and it got Tatum hot. No, it was clear that the attacking the rim was a point of emphasis. The pick and roll kind of came after. Um, Missoula, as often as he does, didn't want to really hone in on Tatum's individual performance. He said a lot about, you know, guys were setting him up. It was a, a team effort and really anything that came to offensive uh, success, he really brought it back to defense. So the defense set up the offense that the only reason the game was close. I mean, the Sixers had a nine point lead at, at one point. I think mm-hmm. that has gotten erased in the coverage, but there was a period in the second quarter. I asked uh, Tay, uh, Joe Mazzula about turnovers. Celtics were coughing up a lot of turnovers and he said, uh, you know, just played defense. Um, which doesn't make any sense, but like it sort of makes sense, I guess. Uh, so I did not ask about pick and roll. I asked about the turnovers, and I got an answer about defense. So I think that that's where Missoula's mind was at. Um, I think that it ultimately got to a point where the Celtics could do anything they wanted on offense. So the pick and roll might have just come from the players running it themselves. Uh, it, it certainly looked stark because we don't see a lot of it from the Celtics, or we see less of it than I think some of us would like to see. But I think Tatum created so much space on the floor that a pick and roll against a, a fine Sixers defense wouldn't ordinarily be the right read, but it, it worked fine here. Any thoughts or comments uh, from the players? I mean, who did you talk to, by the way? I mean, obviously Jalen, obviously Joe, uh, Jason, clearly. But any comments uh, and who said them about the officiating or other yeah. aspects of the game that we haven't <laughs> talked about? Uh, Jalen was asked about the Niang leg grab mm-hmm. and he said Niang's a good guy I'm going to work out with him this summer no love lost and basically said I think he wanted to me to he wanted to slow me down or something and I kind of had to stand there so the, so someone would notice that this happened Scott and then this is a, a paraphrasing but as close to a quote as I can make it Scott Foster comes over and gives me a tech before assessing what had happened so I don't think Jalen would get fined because he's right and the refs were and That's wrong. what happened. Literally, that is what happened. They cannot find him for saying what happened. Yeah. Um, they might try it. He, from there, kind of, I think he heard himself be that that brash, and so then he, he kind of spun his tires on the answer, but I was, uh, he was pretty clear that he didn't like that that had happened. Uh, Missoula was asked about, can I talk about the Woj thing? Have we talked about that? Um, no, please, we barely did, just barely. Okay, so Woj, listeners know what we're talking about at this point? Okay, so first of all, Doc Rivers was asked about it and took the bait pregame and, and like tripled down on it. So he might as well have read the text that he sent to Woj before the game um, at that point. Uh, Missoula was asked about it post-game and said, I was aware of it, but it, you know, didn't really matter. And he completely deflected. Joe Missoula is like a karate master with his blocks. Um, so he didn't jujitsu, I think. <laughs> jujitsu was actually, yeah, that's funny. Uh, that's true. Maybe, maybe that's uh, a funny uh, narrative for a story someday. Um, I could not believe it. I was so distracted and distraught by such journalistic malfeasance on the part of Woj. My guess is it went like this: Daryl Morey called and said, "If you don't send this tweet, I'm going to go to Shams when I fire Doc tomorrow." <laughs> and Woj said, great, what do you want me to write? Because 
that, that I've never seen someone with such a big bully pulpit just completely kiss someone's ass like that. <laughs> um, you got it like you got to be Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz sucking up to Trump or, or something like that because what in the world? And ABC had the game. It was an ABC employee. A di- Disney, uh, Mickey Mouse is on Woj's checks and he's still, God, I hope there aren't ESPN employees. You guys don't work for ESPN, do you? No, okay, good. Um, I I thought that that was wacky. I don't know if you could tell. Just a bit. Uh, I don't know what was going on there. Uh, I, I have suspicions as well, but who knows how the sausages actually get made in that particular factory. Uh, anything else about the historic performance that Jason put out? Uh, Corrales asked him what got into you tonight. That was basically the, the question. Um, Tate, uh, well, let me backtrack. Jalen had a cute answer. Um, I'm excited to actually see the transcript. It was something like, you got to get out of that man's way when Jason Tatum's cooking. And then he gave kind of a canned, we're, we're all better and the, the system works, blah, blah, blah. And then he goes, I think everyone's got to buy a pair of JT1s because there's something special going on. So that was cute from Jalen. Um, Jason was asked about it and he kind of went back to, I was not playing well before I wasn't playing to my level. He later said, I was kind of in my own head. I was I was really worried about how do I get this done for my team and letting go of that, as Tatum explained, is what really helped him stay loose. Um, Missoula, again, there's a theme here for anyone paying attention. Missoula said Tatum got into a groove by playing defense and rebounding, which is probably true, but it's like, is true. Uh, a hilarious. Joe Missoula and I, once again, on the same page, just want to throw that out there. <laughs> Okay, but Jason Tatum didn't score a NBA record 51 points in a game seven because he was rebounding well. I mean, there's a little more to that secret sauce. That's the thing, because as we have been saying in wins and losses, they are a very emotional team. When things don't go right for them, hmm, when things do go right for them, and if the thing that you're trying to make go right for you is defense, well, then if that's what makes your offense go, then do it. No, that's what Jalen, I mean, Jalen told me as such that the, ceiling of this team is defense in that um i mean the frame of the question was they had 13 points in the fourth quarter uh the sixers did last game they had 10 points in the third quarter of this game and when the celtics played at that defensive level i mean i mean we saw it last year it's all the teams beating them is beating themselves I mean, we might as well have like a button on our soundboard to just because we keep saying it so much it's so damn true i mean the sixers are a really good team and to have them score i think they scored like 30 points in the second half in a closeout game is remarkable. Uh, let me double check. I'm, this is not good podcasting, but no, I no, this. you're 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 close enough to be right to be right. No, no, no. James Harden had scored zero points across 32 minutes in games five, six, and seven. So, yeah. like, okay, Philly uh, choked like a dog, to put it bluntly. But don't be so rude Yeah, I've, was that like a big thing in the back in the day that that adage got created that dogs. It's like choking left and right. Um, no, I don't know. Um, I have I wasn't at Sixers media post game, but Harden and Doc Rivers both suggested that they will be back in Philadelphia next year. And I got to tell you, I don't think either of them or Tobias Harris will be. Yeah, I, uh, I, another. How about another, Ben Simmons posting on Instagram a picture yeah. of him watching the game? <laughs> yeah, I love it. Okay, so Joel, uh, Joel, we should... sorry, just one more Sixers media thing. Joel Embiid, interesting quote: "I can't win alone. Me and James, we just can't win alone. That's why basketball is played five on five. Well, Joel, you certainly can't, but you also can't win when you shot at the percentage that you did." There's points. Oh, the Scrubs points are on the board. <laughs> yeah, how about that? Justin Champagne outscored James Harden in the fourth <laughs> quarter tonight. My guy, across the past three games, mind you. Um, no, Joel was good, not great. He was really cooking in the second quarter. I mean, the Celtics were kind of just giving him that was the, that was the formula was, and they went away from it. The Sixers did, which was dumb, but they really worked to pull Horford and Rob, basically using a hard and and, and beat two man game or or strictly pick and roll to bring. Him. He was not yeah. so involved in this this game either. Weirdly, well, so that's so again they they use this pick and roll. They bring. Horford and Rob up and I'm gesturing at the court because I'm sitting next to the court and then it's incumbent on the rest of the Sixers because they got so many open looks PJ Tucker was three of six from the corner but everyone else on the Sixers it's cold I think they shot like 22% from three so that mm-hmm. the system worked I mean Embiid's comments are a little out of pocket 
um because it's just throwing his teammates under the bus but they like they didn't they had an ex a game plan and they didn't execute it the role players being they was it a failure yeah man this camera angle it's unflattering <laughs> don't watch yeah, it just you, you, you were born ugly it's not their fault yeah. For what it's worth, Embiid went two for ten with Al Horford as his primary defender in this game. So let's uh, talk about the the implications for Boston. Uh, we already talked about the matchup for the East Finals a bit, but I'd like to get your perspective on what you expect to hear or see uh, from the Celtics in the next round, which is not going to happen while he is currently frozen. So, <laughs> there we go. You already got my perspective. Well, while we wait for that to happen, uh, there's not too much left to talk about. So maybe what we should do is just wrap for the evening. Uh, I don't know if Kim's ever going to join us again, but if he does, he can tell us what he thinks of the Miami Heat series. Anything that we missed, Alex? That we haven't already talked about let's see anything that we missed um you know we've talked a lot about kind of what the future looks like for the sixers but i still think there's a couple of things oh there it goes cam yeah there's there's a couple of things that are i'm going to be watching um i think you know obviously harden and doc are the big questions but as cam alluded to what what is going to happen with tobias harris i think is an interesting story for this team as well um, you know, he's on a big contract. He did not have a particular, he had an up and down series, I guess I should say. Um, and, you know, if Joel Embiid is out here saying uh, that, uh, you know, he and James Harden need help, the logical guy who's kind of the odd man out there, at least in that starting rotation, you would think would have to be Tobias Harris. I think that uh, PJ Tucker and Tyrese Maxey largely did what they were supposed to do in this series. And I would be very surprised if they were not on the Sixers next year. So what happens with Tobias Harris? Um, and then if Harden is out, is Tyrese Maxey ready to take over as the lead ball handler in that attack? Um, he showed a lot of promise this series. In general, I think Maxi uh, had a really strong, you know, contribution to this Sixers playoff run. And, you know, I think Sixers fans should be pretty optimistic about his future. Is he ready for potentially taking over that offense as the primary ball handler and initiator? That's going to be the next step in his development. I think they need to force the issue, to be frank. Before we close the door on this Game 7 series, give us some thoughts Cam, now that you're back with us, about what you expect to see in the next round. What I expect to see from the next round, this is the unexpected is, like I guess, the correct macro term insofar as we're dealing with a eight-seeded Miami Heat team that blew the barn doors off the presumptive uh, best team in the East and just waxed the Knicks. Um, I don't know. I was talking with people today, like – Similar to the past two series, Boston has so much more talent, should be heavily favored. But A, they get in their own way a lot. And then B, I don't know what they're feeding Max Struess and Caleb Martin and whatnot, but just because it, they are undrafted and don't have you know, the, the flashy credentials, the Sixers team is pretty deep and pretty solid. I think the Sixers don't really let you make mistakes. You can make mistakes mm -hmm. against, I mean, the, the Heat. Sorry, thank you, Alex. You can make mistakes against the Sixers. You can make mistakes against the Hawks, and maybe it'll cost you a game or something, but it won't cost you a series. I think the the threshold for lollygagging is, is pretty low here. Um, and let's remember that Boston, two or the four years ago in the Eastern Conference Finals, couldn't get it done against the Heat. And then last year in the Eastern Conference Finals against the Heat, they came within a Jimmy Butler three from not advancing. So Boston ought to be heavily favored, but my levels of respect for the heat and the heat way remain mega high. I think prior to the season, I would have said the heat culture thing is kind of overblown, but I'm ready to, I'm ready to believe. Well, I think it's a good place to, to put a cork in it. Uh, what, me, me saying the Heat are, are unbelievable? <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, like, do we really want to say, like, how great the Celtics are going to be so they go out and lose game one? 
I mean, like, not that we're gonna do it, but I mean, like that's just not the vibe we want to put out there. Well, is opinion. anyone pick? Is anyone picking the Heat? No. Here's here's where we want to leave off. What we want to leave off with is this: the uh, Boston Celtics are in for a real challenge against the Miami Heat. They have got a tough matchup, and Miami is gonna bring it in ways they haven't yet encountered this postseason. But as long as Jason Tatum continues to be the guy that he was tonight, the Celtics' chances for Banner 18 are very, very high. This episode of the Celtics Lab podcast is brought to you by FanDuel, the exclusive wagering partner of the CLNS Media Network and BetterHelp. You deserve to be happy, and I think most of us, except for 76ers fans, are. Adios.